Hey, stranger. <laughs> this is weird now. He's here. He's in my basement again. It's been a long time. <laughs> when did you get here? We're both fully vaxxed, and the restrictions have been changed for Toronto and Ontario, I think, as well. So we're recording in person again. But my proper intro is this. Hi there, film fans, and thanks for downloading the 82nd edition of Scoring at the Movies. We go back in time and pick apart sports films, and we spoil all their delightful secrets. I'm the rube who prefers to run out front and hopes it doesn't come down to a pure guts race because I'm a bit light on guts. Ryan Ellis. And here's the fellow with hair that's most definitely shorter than his dick, and who always aims to go faster, higher, stronger, but can endure more pain than anyone you've ever met. Christy Gregorio. That's a build-up. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. It is strange that up until I started my track and field days in university and I got that exact edict from our coach, I had shoulder-length hair. Now I got none. I feel like that's a cosmic commentary somehow on endowment. The Bible thumper could keep his hair. As yeah. It turned out. But we might have to keep this very short, Ryan, because I've got some rubber cooking on the waffle iron upstairs. So mm. I've got about 90 seconds before that's ready. <laughs> and you don't want some overcooked rubber, that's for sure. You do not. It does not crisp up nicely. Well, I can't forget to ask you about a drink because it's right in front of me for the first time in quite a while. And I've got one as well. I'm going to pop open my beer, which is just a Mill Street Organic. <sighs> what have you got over there? Got me a little... Rainbow Sherbet Squeeze Play yeah. Sour Beer. Although if I'd known you were drinking a Mill Street today, I would have brought some Mill Street myself. Well, I have more. Could have gone simpatico. Well, you're staying for dinner, so after this you can have one. I haven't had beer in a while. I feel like a beer today. This guy is a bartender later in the movie. That's Reminded true. me of the Itonia arc, actually, where she has to put herself through school and put herself through everything, have a part-time job, and her competitors do not. I've got to work this crappy job, and these other guys focus just on running. You're right. Although I didn't consider I, Tonya directly when I was watching this movie, and it's a good comparison because they're both, of course, amateur athletes that never quite reach the heights that they themselves think they should, at the very least. And in Prefontaine's case, I guess the movie would have us believe everybody thought he should have reached those heights eventually. But the amateur athletics commentary in this movie is something that I wish they'd played up a little bit more. I think they do a better job of that particular element of it in I, Tonya. Yes. Because you certainly understand her struggle just trying to compete and live at the same time. And in this one, it's just kind of tossed in periodically. He has a little bit of a rant in the middle of a sauna session, and then it goes away for a while. He goes after that Pounder guy. They pronounce it Ponder, but it's spelled Pounder. Colin Pounder? Pounder. Colin it's spelled Pounder. Pounder, but it's pronounced, as he says it, Ponder. Yeah, he just suddenly freaks out. And then, like you said, later on, he has that little bit of a diatribe with Donald Sutherland's character. The end credits talk about how the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, will be broken up. Well, Congress did break it up because yeah. of the corruption and because of things like what we see in this film. Part of the elements of this film I really do want to talk about is the portrayal of Prefontaine beyond just the racing stuff. It's in the news these days is the NCAA. We only hear the NCAA briefly referenced in one or two track meets in this movie. It's mostly about the AAU. And it's astounding to me that an organization like that could be broken up, acknowledging the corruption and the inequity of such an organization existing. And yet the NCAA would continue on and continues on to this day. 
pretty much doing the same thing. I don't know the details specifically, but I think the Supreme Court just ruled in the favor of some college athletes. I think the ball is starting to roll and gain a little bit momentum towards at least paying the athletes a more equitable living wage than they have been receiving historically. And I hope that's true because it's insane that the schools and the athletic associations can make this much money and athletes are just expected to live in poverty. And if they do break the rules, they're gone Yeah, for taking a wristwatch or taking a car while a car's a big thing. But we talked about that on He Got Game and other films. Exactly. It's come up before. And it'll come up again because we'll do movies, I'm sure, that talk about amateur athletics and the hypocrisy and crap, the lies. All right. Well, Grenzenlos, Grenzenlos, as it was known in Germany. It just rolls off the tongue. Does it ever? Yeah. was released by Warner Brothers on 9-11, 1998. So three years before the big day. What a bomb. What a bomb. What a bomb. What a mighty big bomb. It didn't even make $1 million. So it didn't rank in the top 200 on the box office mojo list in 98 i looked and i didn't find it at all and i finally actually checked the number it made and thought oh no it's still not even that close to 200 it might be 210 or something i had never heard of this movie until you suggested it and considering 1998 was like my prime time movie going doesn't surprise me it made so little money because it clearly wasn't on the radar we'll be doing the water boy at some point probably fairly soon that was 1998 that was a monster hit oh that one i remember uh-huh all right well you watched this movie just a couple of hours ago and we record this in the later afternoon we're gonna have dinner like i said in a few hours Let's get to dinner soon. We'll get through the podcast first. What do you think of Without Limits? Or they probably should have just called it Pre. They, they call him Pre all the time. He's rarely called Steve. I think we've had this little rant before about the lack of imaginative nicknames in sport. Hockey being, I think, maybe the worst culprit of this. But man, yeah, by the 1800th time I heard them call him Pre, I was like, oh my God. I'm sure that was the real life reality of it, but it wore on me a little bit. As far as my thoughts on the movie as a whole, I thought it was a fine paint-by-numbers, sport, biopic style of movie. And I don't know a lot about Steve Prefontaine. Or about Olympic racing, running, I should say. That's part of the reason why I know so little about this guy is because the only running that I ever pay attention to on the Olympic front, really, and I think this is probably true of most sports fans. 100-meter dash. 100-meter dash, exactly. And maybe the occasional 400 or like 400-meter relay or something, but... Not 5,000-meter, though. No, three, five, ten thousand 10,000-meter races. Don't know anything about it. So the reason that came to mind for me specifically was because Steve Prefontaine, just at a glance online, you realize this is a guy that was culturally relevant in his time in America, at the very least, mm-hmm. and remained so for a significant period of time thereafter. And for that to happen, for somebody that was never an Olympic success and only ran these kind of non-prestige, I don't know if that's a correct term for exactly what you said. It's not the 100-meter dash, for instance. And it's not the Olympics either. Well, it was the Olympics that he raced in, yeah. but he finished fourth. Yeah, but he developed his notoriety in America by breaking American records. Constantly. Constantly running unusual lengths that aren't typically very popular. So this is a guy that must have had a certain level of charisma and personality to him. He really did, and he was outspoken about a number of things that are only barely touched on in this movie. And knowing all of that, it felt like this movie was doing a little bit of a disservice to the man, Steve Prefontaine, by just strictly focusing on him as this runner. And his sex life. And so much about his his (laughs) sex life. I felt slightly disappointed by that. I found myself oddly apathetic about the way it ended, even though it's a tragic ending to this man's young life. Dying in a car wreck, yeah. At 24. So young. It's incredible. 
I'm going to ask you the question, how you felt about that, because I should feel slightly more, if not outwardly emotional, at least feel bad about it, but I didn't. And to me, it's only because I think Billy Crudup, whether intentionally or not, because I like Billy Crudup mm-hmm. generally, but he just throughout the movie was such an unpleasant person. Yeah. When I was meant to be just, come on, Steve, you're going to do it in Montreal. And then he died. And I'm like, eh, all right. He wasn't a good person. He was a talented runner, but he just stuck it to everybody that knew him and was trying desperately to help him. So, okay. I liked it more than you. I've seen it probably four times. I never saw Prefontaine, the Jared Leto one. I'm guessing he was pretty good casting for that. I don't know who directed that one. This is Robert Town, who wrote and directed. And Town wrote with Kenny Moore, who's portrayed by Billy Burke, the father from Twilight. If you recognize that face. Oh, you've never seen Twilight. I've never seen Twilight. Well, for those listening who have, if you wonder who that face is, that's the guy. But he played Kenny Moore, and the real Moore wrote with Town. I think the screenplay is pretty solid. And you're right, it is a bit paint by numbers. But a lot of biopics, even really good ones, are. Yeah. As good as, for example, Ray and Walk the Line and Back to Back Years about legends, Ray Charles and Johnny Cash were, they're the same story. And maybe that's why Walk the Line didn't get as much acclaim as Ray did. Those aren't even the same stories, literally, though, but these two were. This is the Ants of Bugs Life thing or Armageddon Deep Impact thing. All around the same time, too, 97, 98 time frame that all that happened. Dante's Peak and Volcano also around that same time frame. So I've never seen the other movie, but I do like this one quite a bit. And the critics did, too. 79% of them said A-OK. 6.6 out of 10 was the average. Only 39 reviews, so not a great sample. 91% of audiences, and yet nobody went out to see it Hmm. back then in 1998. And the Prefontaine movie with Leto also failed and got meh reviews. Not even as good as this one. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I would imagine at some point we will watch that movie, and at that point it'll be interesting to contrast how the two different directors and screenwriters took on the same story. I understand that this being a biopic is locked into a certain structure, and to its credit, it seems like it did try to stick to the reality of this man's life and tell a fairly accurate tale. And so I'm not going to knock it too hard for feeling a little prosaic or paint-by-numbers to me. But as with a lot of the sports movies we do that I kind of have a man reaction to, it's usually because there's elements in the movie that I feel like don't do anything for me, and there's elements of the movie that I feel like would and were left out. So that's why I mentioned things like I wish they had included more of Steve's non-race-related personality, non foot racing not racial stuff but you know what i mean yeah like, so the aau thing aau things he speaks at various points in his life i think about i'm going to misparaphrase this but essentially like screw patriotism i'm doing this for me mm. just getting more insight into the man beyond when he's ranting about racing if they had inserted a little bit more of that and maybe removed a little bit of the love story in this thing such as it is i think i would have been a happier camper because i couldn't have cared less about that arc Mostly because it had zero impact on his racing. That's the focus of the movie, is the racing. And she also gets zero opportunity to develop as a character. I don't know who this woman is or why you're so enamored with her, because all we know about her is she's kind of a pretty strong-willed Catholic blonde girl. Who won't go all the way. Who won't go all the way. At least at first. Yeah, so if you're not going to allow that character to develop and have us root for her and for him to be a couple together then I couldn't care less about it. Give me more interesting stuff about the actual subject of your movie, if that's the case. Well, Monica Potter does play Mary, and the real Mary actually talked to Town and Moore and was involved in the filming, I think, behind the scenes. She provided them with letters that he wrote, because we do hear some voiceover, and they get rid of a lot of exposition that way in the film, 
with him explaining, especially the AAU controversy that he had with them mm-hmm. through those letters. Monica Potter does play her, though. Only did 13 movies in total. Nothing, so. since, yeah, nothing since 2009. She was the love interest in Con Air, and then she was the That's wife right. in Saw, which Bev and I covered a couple of years ago. I always thought she sounded, and even a little bit looks, like Julia Roberts. Very much. But of course, okay, good. I've never heard anyone agree with me on that really? before. Maybe I've not said it enough to other people. And yet, look at the careers. I don't know why Potter stopped working, at least in movies. I don't know if she still makes TV. Maybe she does. But the last movie she made was a horror film, Last House on the Left. And I think she's fine in this role, but yeah, she's not given very much to do. Certainly nothing original to do. And I guess it's based on reality, but it doesn't really feel believable that this guy who messes around with everybody, bit of a quirky, fun scene, depressing though, too, if you want to believe in their love story, when he takes her out, fits her for shoes, and then she notices so many girls in that restaurant have the same shoes on. That was a great scene. That speaks volumes by not actually writing that he's been sleeping with a lot of girls. Full credit to the movie for that one. It starts that love interest off on the wrong foot by portraying Steve as... Uh, a bit of a womanizer. And at that point, he's an 18 or 19-year-old. Why wouldn't he be? Kid, yeah. And he's incredibly fit. He's very popular. Good-looking guy. Good-looking guy. Billy Crudup looks a lot like him, too. Yeah, I saw pictures of the real Steve Prefontaine, and he does do a great job of really looking the part. The long hair, the mustache. He's a young kid. He's not in a relationship with this other woman. He's just trying to win her over. And you can accept the fact that she's put off by the fact that she sees all these other women, and she has these impressions of him. And if they wanted to use that as a springboard into developing her character or actually developing a meaningful arc around their relationship, then I would have been all for that. But aside from the utility of the voiceover, I think there's a value to that as far as getting rid of some of the necessary exposition dumping that otherwise would take place. I felt bad for Monica Potter because yeah, she was not given much to work with in this film. Maybe that's why she stopped making movies. Maybe she felt like, I'm just being the wife in horror films like Saw and Last House on the Left. Or I'm in a pretty good movie like this that no one saw, and I don't have anything interesting to do. Could be. Well, the thing that makes this movie work at all, and I do like it, so obviously I think this stuff works extremely well. And I like the love story a little bit more than you, by the way. Not great, but a little bit more than you. But the thing that works the best, of course, is the running. I think the portrayal of the sport mm-hmm. for something that we don't know much about, maybe you know more than me. I'm not a running person. I've ever been a long-distance runner. I'm the stamina for that. I was relatively fast when I was younger, but I wasn't a sprinter either. But without knowing that much about it, it is very well done. And then the big race in the 72 Olympics in Munich, there is a lot of production value in that, a lot of editing. And I haven't seen this movie in quite a while, so I forgot that he didn't win. I didn't think he won, actually, but I didn't know that he finished fourth. And they made that so believable. I'm sure that's based on how it went down. He's leading. Actually, no, he's not leading for the longest time because he's stuck back. He's trapped. And he finally makes his opening. And as always, gets to be a front runner. But then Viren pulls back ahead. Then it's Pre, then it's Viren. And then Pre falls back just enough. And he ends up finishing fourth by somebody coming up at the last possible second to prevent him from getting even just a bronze medal. And yet, many people say, including the guy back home in Oregon, says to Mary, he ran the best race I've ever seen. Obviously, he didn't literally because he finished fourth, but the best race that this guy has seen from an American, maybe, front running, which most people don't want to do, but he wants to win the whole time. He doesn't want to be settling. Ironically, though, the last race he ever has with Shorter, they're sharing the drafting thing until he basically says, I don't think he actually said, he doesn't say it, but... I think it's supposed to be an implication that he's thinking, I'm not doing this anymore. Tell with it, Frank. If you can't beat me for real, then you're not going to beat me for real. But they are sharing the drafting in that restoration race. But the actual Olympic race, you had to think that was good, right? I thought all of the racing portrayal was really good. The interesting thing about the way this movie does it is, I think, anyway, because like you said, we're not aficionados of racing by any stretch, but I've certainly watched my fair share of track events, whether it's at Olympic Games or otherwise. 
There is a running style for sprinting versus distance running and just amateurs like us that flail around when we try to run. <laughs> I'm guessing tucking your pelvis is a big part of it. <laughs> like at the moment, a deepest penetration. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And I think this movie actually did a good job of having all of the actors involved in the racing, including Billy Crudup, look like they knew how to run technically, mm -hmm. right? And the other element of it is the fact that Billy Crudup himself is not a particularly big guy, nor was Prefontaine. I think Prefontaine was actually quite small for a runner, because long limbs are obviously beneficial if you're a runner, right? right? Look at Usain strides. Bolt, for example. Usain Bolt is a huge man, yeah. So... The portrayal was really well done from a few perspectives for people like me, like us, that aren't aficionados of the sport. It puts you in the spectator's booth, right? So you can see the overall layout of the pack, who's where in the race. But then it puts you in with Steve, whether he's in the pack trying to get his way out. And then it moves over to Donald Sutherland's character. He's one of my favorite elements of this movie. He's great in this. What we've often complained about in other movies, especially about sports that aren't mainstream necessarily, is you get the expert commentary from Donald Sutherland explaining what's happening for the viewer. Usually he's talking to his assistant coach, but he's really a voice telling you what's going on. You get the bird's eye view of the race and you get the element of experiencing what Steve is experiencing. What I took away from this movie that I never knew going in was the elements of strategy that exist for this distance of race versus something like a hundred meter dash, which is just, all right, go. Yeah. Right? These guys use math. Yeah, they use math, they use strategy. You mentioned the drafting. When do you kick it into gear? When do you lay back and allow somebody else to be the front runner? And then you make your move. It's almost very much like car racing. You pick your spots and you go. You led me into the nutshell then. Oh, right. Because we do see it in this movie a little bit. And it reminded me of Days of Thunder, which we talked about two weeks ago on Ford versus Ferrari a little. We're in a nutshell on Without Limits. Robinson is racing. Yeah. As Duvall says in Days of Thunder, they do rub each other and bump a little bit. You could argue it's intentional. I don't think it's really supposed to be, but then maybe sometimes it is. My other nutshell, by the way, another movie I can reference, a whole different movie. Run away! Run away! One of the great moments in Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Moments many times in that movie, they say run away. <laughs> Whenever they're afraid of anything, they run away. Your nutshell just brought this to mind for me. What did you make of those flashback moments? Because I wasn't really sure what we were supposed to take from that, that he was bullied? Yeah, they don't really follow up on that, do they? He's a German kid. His mother has an accent. It seems like she's been strict. His family's probably yeah. held him down. Maybe one reason why he's messing around as much as he possibly can, because I might as well, and all these girls have thrown themselves at me. Look how he gets the people on his side, in this movie at least, maybe not in reality, chanting his name right away. The first time he wins a race that we see in the entire film when he gets to Oregon, everybody, pre, pre, pre. How they know it's his nickname already, I don't know. <laughs> yes, it's a short form of his name. You think it'd be pre-Fontaine, pre-Fontaine. But maybe that's the whole logic there, that he's going to sow oats while he still can. He's still young. He doesn't. Well, he doesn't yeah. realize he's going to die in about six years when the movie starts. But as far as that flashback goes, I don't really know why that's there. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought for sure it was going to be one of those elements of the movie where you see Prefontaine as a college student slash international racer and then periodically flashback to him growing up in formative parts of his childhood because I felt like that's what they were leading us with when the movie opens on that flashback. But that's it. We get that one early, and then we get a second glimpse of that same flashback a little bit later, and nothing else, and no explainer. There's no evidence. At no point in the movie does Prefontaine say, you know, I really had a tough childhood. I was bullied a lot because I was a small kid, so I really loved running as a result. It's just sort of in the movie, and I'm not sure why. I'm guessing there's deleted scenes. I didn't read that. I'm just completely guessing right now. 
where town wanted to elaborate on that more and then thought this stuff would be fine to leave in. But you're right. Why is it there if he's not going to follow up on it at all? Yeah, that would make sense. You know who's going to be the lead of this movie? Going to play Pre. And he did produce the film. I think it's one of the first uh, films he ever produced. Tom Cruise. He yeah, could have played that. the character in Ford versus Ferrari. That was supposed to be a cruise pit vehicle at one point, pun intended, I guess, vehicle. <laughs> but they realized that Cruise was too old. But fittingly, the guy who's always running could have played a runner. Instead, he ended up being a producer, and they got Crudup to play hmm. the character. And Crudup does look like Cruise, I think. Of course, William Apother, who does play the Bible freak, whatever the Bible thumper character, is Cruise's cousin and has been in many films with Tom over the years. And Cruz and Town were friends at this point because Town, I think, wrote, definitely got involved in the writing of Days of Thunder. And he also wrote something else Cruz was in or was involved in. I forget what it was now. It would have been weird to have Cruz being, let's see, I think he's born in 62. It would have been a little bit nuts. I'm happy they made this choice because, like you said earlier, Crudup actually looks a lot like Steve Prefontaine. And this movie brought up a few questions that I don't often ask myself. To a certain extent, it's a moot point. Whatever your intention might be. How I interpret a movie is how I consume it and, how, I agree with and that. what it means to me, right? Mm -hmm. But when I'm dealing with an actor that I've seen in other roles, like Billy Crudup, and I generally quite like, and I thought he did a good job here. He was very good and almost famous. Bev and I covered that last year. She's not a fan, but I love that movie. And I think he's great casting. And Pitt was supposed to play that character. Jeez, high man. in yet again. Crudup's a lesser known actor than Pitt. I think it was a better piece of casting than Pitt would have been. Well, just like Cruz in this one. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and so when I see his performance in this... And I find myself just on a personal level, personal is the wrong word, but you know, as a man, I find myself disliking Steve Prefontaine. Is that the director's intention? Is he trying to make this guy abrasive? To a certain extent, the director certainly is because we hear it explicitly stated in the eulogy about how strong-headed and willful Prefontaine was. But it feels like it's taken to such a degree and the pedal is never really let up on when it comes to that abrasiveness. We're given so little opportunity to embrace Steve Prefontaine as a man. And again, that comes back to my earlier comments around wishing there was a little bit more context to him beyond the racing. But then I start wondering, so if that was the director's choice, why? What was he trying to get at there? And why would we believe then that Prefontaine is this darling of the American racing world if for the last two hours I've watched him be nothing but a dick to everybody around him? I don't think he was that bad of a person around them, but also they saw him win a lot. So he can be even more of an ass than he was in this. America loves a winner. That may be the answer. Well, Town's the one who wrote Chinatown, mm -hmm. one of the great screenplays of all time, which probably was co-written by Roman Polanski, we find out now. And I know he's broken for everybody, but he was a great and still is a great filmmaker. And then Town eventually worked on Personal Best, which is, I believe, a track and field movie, right? That's Mariel Hemingway, and I forget the other actress in that, and they're lesbian lovers, I believe. And that was a pretty big thing in 1982 to do. So Town must like track and field sports movies and he also likes complicated lead characters maybe that's just a holdover from that and at a time when we started seeing more black and white type of characters than town was used to working on that may be part of the angle there too well you mentioned him a few minutes ago we got to talk about the best thing in the whole film Crudup is good i think the film's well made but Stalin sutherland who was nominated for a golden globe for this performance didn't get an oscar nomination never has in his entire career probably should really? have been Ordinary People, which Bev and I covered last year as well for the other podcast. And this one's another one that could have been a nomination for him. He has the voiceover that explains his relationship with Pre early on. And then he talks at the eulogy later on, sheds some tears. I don't think Sutherland has been a big tear shedder in his career. So that's an unusual thing there. But I also love the first time we really truly see him is when he is leaning down to measure Steve's feet and talking about the shoes he's going to make because he designs all the runner's shoes. And it's almost like a seduction, the way that's played out. Just like later on when he makes the new Nike shoes because Bill Bowerman, Sutherland's character, invented Nike. 
started selling shoes out of the trunk of his car, I think, ultimately. Isn't that the origin story of Nike? That was an interesting intro. And you're right, he is the best thing in this movie. It felt almost like watching Sylvester Stallone take on the Mick character to Adonis Creed in the Creed movies, watching Donald Southern be Bill Bauer, Bill Bauerman, sorry, mm-hmm. to Steve Prefontaine. And he's just consistently soft-spoken, and you buy him as the guy, because we hear some preamble before we ever meet him. He won't recruit. He won't recruit. He's the strongest-willed guy you'll ever meet. He like, won't kiss anyone's ass. Yeah, he'll bite your head off in an instant, but as it turns out, he's also an experienced enough and confident enough guy, comfortable enough in his own shoes, so to speak. You never hear him raise his voice once, despite all of the pushback he gets from Steve throughout the movie. He's just consistently Zen mastering his way through this, repeating the message over and over right. over time. Right? Caesar Milan quality there. Kinda, yeah. I thought he's he was the pre whisperer. <laughs> yeah, he's the pre whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> that relationship is the one that means the most in the movie by a mile. Oh, way more than the one Pre has with Mary, or the other girls for that matter. Although the scene where he's with Iowa's finest, it says in the credits, that's pretty hot. This is the sexiest movie we've seen in a while, and it's based mostly on that one scene. Because we don't really see Pre with the other girls, we just know he was with them. Yes. But that's a pretty elaborate scene. No nudity, but pretty cool when (laughs) the Bible guy walks in and sees them. Maybe not that cool, I guess. Whatever they're doing upside down, but then when he falls and hits his foot on the heater, I always remember this scene as much as anything in this entire movie. Because it's cut open and he needs stitches in his toe, and they're supposed to run... Well, a couple days later, he says, I don't have to run the heats. But even so... And then when he wins that race and sets another record, the guy he ran against, see them pull the shoe off and the whole foot is just red. Yeah, that's gross. And that's where he, no, he says it later, I guess, to Mary about how I can take more pain than anyone you've ever seen or met. That is remarkable. I can't imagine walking a long distance with a toe or whatever, a foot that's been cut open and then stitched up like that. No, you're absolutely right. That was a great scene. Yeah, we get a lot of half-naked Billy Crud up in this and... Fair play to him. He got in some really good shape mm-hmm. for this movie. He looks like Believable, though, because he's supposed to be in the late 60s, early 70s. He shouldn't look like they look now. And as a runner, he's just lean and strong looking. Mm-hmm. He's not weirdly bulked up or anything. I wish I knew whether that scene in the motel room where they're like handstanding it or something, mm-hmm. and then he topples over and cuts his toe open on the heater. I want to know if that's actually true, because if it is, that's bloody hilarious. That's a great workout. <laughs> To thrust that way and yeah. you basically do a push-up. Keep got, your balance. Kind of a strong core. Mm-hmm. And I do like the fact that the Bible-thumping member of the team that he's rooming with and walks in and then gets like this weird grin on his face and then closes the door and opens the door again to apologize and then closes the door. Get out! Get out! What did we just tell you? Get out of here. You know what came to mind for me is Kurt Schilling, right? The Red Sox, right. Red Sox, Red Sox mm-hmm. pitching performance when he pulls the shoe off. And I thought it was a great choice to have the competitor, what's his name, Don something, the other racer that comes up to Steve Prefontaine and says, finally made you work for it this time, eh, Steve? And then looks down and sees that this guy was basically running on one foot the whole race and still beat him. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's a little bit of a foreshadowing of post-Munich Olympics when he's working at the pad as a bartender and Don mm-hmm. Southern comes to visit and gives him the whole... Soft-spoken, but the whole riot act about how bullshit the whole notion of your notion of talent doesn't exist and it's all your will is nonsense. He cites a few things, including you can pump more blood with your heart than anybody in this country. And it's like taking a sledgehammer to your foot in order for you to feel anything. And that is a talent in and of itself because you can just get out there and run and run and run and your body's going to let you do it. 
And he's right. That is sort of the second question that this movie made me ask is the whole notion of will and effort versus talent. What matters to an individual? I didn't think of this until right this second you bring this up. Who do we just say was going to play this character? And if he'd been younger, would have played this character? Tom Cruise. Cruise. We've loved him in a lot of movies, but a lot of people don't. A lot of film critics have not. But Tom Cruise, more than any other actor, and I know I've said this in other podcasts about him before, tries so hard to be good. Yeah. He probably believes, especially with the Scientology thing, that deep down he can will himself to be great in any role he takes on. So maybe it's even more fitting that he was a producer and could have been the star of this movie for that reason alone. I don't think that's Crudup's arc as an actor. No. He seems like a pretty grounded, normal guy. He was on Marin, Mark Marin's podcast a few months ago promoting something that I think won him an Emmy. He seemed like a pretty ordinary dude. Didn't come across like any kind of, yeah, I'm the star of the world. He would know he's not the star of the world, but maybe that's what it is. Cruz is somebody who has talent, but not as much as a lot of other people in his generation. But I will just will myself to be the biggest star in the world. And in some ways he did. Long ago, of course, when he first mm-hmm. got to be a huge star. Tom Cruise shouldn't be. A little guy like him isn't as naturally talented as RDJ or Russell Crowe or some of the actors the same age, or Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, is about the same age. But look at him, still one of the biggest stars ever. That's a good example in moviedom anyway, because you're right. It's just a sheer drive, desire, and will to get to a, a certain place. And that's off-putting for some people. And you're also right in saying, I think we both generally appreciate that in his movies. But Steve Prefontaine both in like the fictionalized sense of watching this movie, but also in, as portrayed in this movie, Steve's attitude towards winning and the effect on him post-Munich when he doesn't win, it felt a little jarring, I guess, to me. I understand that we are told and shown over and over that winning is everything, and Steve believes that he's not imbued with any particular talent, but simply works harder than other people, and that's the whole comment about it turning into a guts race, because nobody can beat him with guts at the Olympics. But I think the whole notion of sport, and in particular Olympic and amateur sport, is and I think actually Donald Sutherland implies this, right? Higher, stronger, faster, not than anybody else, but then yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, just be better than you were yesterday kind of thing. And I've always believed that to be true personally in sports. I mean, I want to win. I know you want to win. When we've played silly recreational sports together, we always want to win. Mm -hmm. But I think we also come away from it, win, lose, or draw, is thinking, did we play the best we could play individually or as a group? If yes, then we still lost. We were just beat. Now, granted, we don't have the ego of somebody that has set national records in anything, but you'd think at some point between taking up running and hitting the Olympics, whether it's from Donald Sutherland or otherwise, somebody may have been able to sneak in some element of, Steve, you're not going to win every single race every time. It almost felt like Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby. If you ain't first, you're last. And when you're not first, all of a sudden your whole world crashes down around Mm -hmm. you. Well, there's a reason why the guy back home said that's the greatest race I've ever seen anyone run, even though he finished fourth. Because he did truly do his best. Pure guts, right? And it was the guts race, yeah. Well, the Olympics, of course, in 72 were in Munich. And we see that in the beginning. Then they go back to 69 and we come back to that later on. Did you notice that William Friedkin is the director of the Olympics? That's the guy who directed Blue Chips. We did that a few years ago. And, of course, The Exorcist many years ago. Doesn't act much, but he's acting here for town. And the music. John Williams is the one. So... The Star Wars Jaws guy. Really? Music for the Olympics, but not back in 72. So that's a little anachronistic. Oh, okay. But it's because we all know that now. I didn't know it was Williams until I got the Greatest Hits Williams CD. 
And of course, he's done so many great music scores for movies, but that's one of the best things in the entire double set CD. I noticed no sound in this movie, in contrast to Ford v. Ferrari, where which is all about sound. <laughs> sound and the score really took me in that movie. But mm-hmm. this one, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it just means I was more involved with the characters, but I didn't mm-hmm. notice anything, including the Olympic theme when they played it during the demonstrated broadcast for 72. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we got to talk about in 72, of course, is that's when, and Spielberg made a movie about this in 2005, Munich. The Israelis were kidnapped. Two of them were killed when the Palestinians actually took the other, I guess, nine hostage, and then they all end up dying. All 11 of them were killed. And that's a fairly big amount of screen time in this film. You have to deal with it if you're going to show the Prefontaine race. Of course. And I think Prefontaine's whole thing is, we're here to race. And it's not that he doesn't care about these people, but in some ways he's so focused that he doesn't care. You know what I'm saying? I think a lot of people feel like, well, the Olympics are over. Why would we keep going? But then it's Sutherland who has the voiceover about how this was an extension of war doing it this way. So if there's going to be a warlike act, and there may be war coming out of that whole conflict with the Palestinians and Israelis all over again, but let's do it the right way. Let's beat them on the field, if you will. Not that it's about Israelis and Palestinians and their particular races, although maybe it is, for all we know. Some of the guys on the team could have been Jewish or they could have been Palestinian. I don't think they were. But anyway, they deal with that, and then they get back to racing, and we see the big, long race that's so well done in the film. Something that had to be addressed, you knew it was going to be in the movie. I don't remember specifically when in the movie it's spoken to, whether before, during, or after the sequence of the Israelis being kidnapped and ultimately killed. But Donald Sutherland at some point does also speak to the fact that the whole notion of the Olympics, at least in its ancient iteration, was meant to be, let's all set aside our grievances and our arms and come together and just unify through sport for at least a period of time. Even though we know through history there's been abstentions from Olympic Games because of international conflicts and stuff like that, that's fine. You can't overcome all conflicts for the sake of Olympic Games, I get it. But as an ideal, I do think it makes sense to try to acknowledge and pay respect to what had happened, but then continue on. It's kind of the whole thing of don't let the terrorists win, right? Right. You're not going to break our spirits. Though what did confuse me about that sequence was they stay up all night watching the events unfolding, All the entire racing team. They're all huddled together in their quarters. Steve Prefontaine is so focused on this race that he comes across almost as uncaring about the whole thing. And he says, aghast, Galda Meir just requested that the games be either cancelled or put on hold, right? So the notion that the race might not happen because of this tragedy sets him back a little bit. And then things end tragically, and then we get a scene of Steve waking up on the couch, and Donald Sutherland wakes him up and says, no, no, I fall asleep, but I have to tell you, the Palestinians and Israelis were ambushed or something, everybody died, and I'm so sorry. I was so confused by that sequence, because it implied that Steve had some sort of connection to what was going on, more so than anybody else on the team. I don't think he was Jewish, though. I think they said he was German. I thought so, too. He could be a... Jewish German person, granted, but I don't think he was Jewish. Part of his whole arc is the fact that he doesn't believe in religion. That's his whole thing with Mary is that she's Catholic and he doesn't buy that. And it's never said, well, I'm not Catholic because I'm Jewish. It's just implied I don't believe in religion. I read it that Sutherland was saying, sorry, because the games are now over. But obviously they weren't because it actually happened. Yeah, then we go straight to the race. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess they skipped a lot of stuff there. I don't think Munich, the movie, Spielberg's movie, really dealt with the Olympics that much. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I think it's way more about, I will set the scene for you. He shows when they go in and capture the athletes, but I don't think they really dwell on that whole sequence that long. 
In this movie, they certainly don't either, but they didn't skirt past it and just pretend it didn't happen. And that's important. Just like the end, they have him die. So we know that he doesn't make it out. Another guy who dies in a car wreck, two straight movies for us. I didn't pick them that way on purpose, but Ford versus Ferrari. (laughs) Ken Miles, he was at least older. I think we said he was probably in his mid-40s, we think. And Prefontaine, only 24. One of the worst things in the whole film, though, is during the eulogy where Sutherland says that running tests a human heart. (sighs) That's lame. Robert Town, you can do better than that. You have done better than that so many times. But I gave it a slight pass in this case, A, because it was Donald Sutherland delivering it, and he did give an unusually emotional performance during that eulogy for Donald Sutherland. I took it to mean they were going for a slightly clumsy double entendre there, both the heart as in the spirit of the man, or just the spirit of the racer, I shouldn't say man, but also physically, it tests your cardiovascular capacity. That is something that Donald Sutherland specifically referenced in that scene at Patty's where he talks about your heart is just stronger than most people's. That was an interesting scene earlier in the movie, by the way. I don't know how you felt about it. He tells Prefontaine to run either a team lap or a slow lap to start the race and then speed up throughout the race. Prefontaine does it because as we are bludgeoned into knowing, he's a front runner always, Mm. always, always. He wins the race, but as he's coming off, Donald Sutherland choke grabs him. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, oh, damn, what's he going to do? Is he going to choke slam him? But then he just like holds him for three seconds and says, your heart rate is above 190. Steve's heart rate physically and in terms of will is a recurring theme. So I'm like, okay, that is a cheesy line, Robert Town, Donald Sutherland, but I'll allow it because you've built up that theme. In a literal sense then, not in the metaphorical sense. Okay, that's a good point. Fair enough, I guess. At the time, I thought it was one of the worst lines in the movie. But... <laughs> it's not great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, all right, I'll give you a slight pass on that one. The flip side of that really good line is a simple one. But when Bill puts on the Nike shoes, Pre goes for a run. And I guess that's when he decides he's going to go to Montreal after all. Or doesn't make it, but he wants to. But his line is just about how the shoes are. Not bad. And Sutherland's face betrays it just a little bit. Really good performance. That's all you say about my brand new shoes? And of course, they weren't the Nikes we would know and love many years later. But that's Pree's version of a compliment, I guess. Pree saying, they're awesome, is him saying, not bad. That's their whole relationship, is Pree never saying a kind word, really, to Bill throughout the movie. So when you get something that approaches kindness... That's he's going to do. A cute <laughs> smirk. And you're right, those are like very retro, basic-looking sneakers. But can you imagine how much those would go for now? If you just had a pair? One of these guys probably do, yeah. Oh, my God. There's a lot of actors in this, of course, they're the runners. Jeremy Sisto is Frank Shorter. He's done plenty of things. He's in Clueless. Bev and I've covered that one as well. And he's been in plenty of horror films. He's the one that has the wisdom teeth problem and has to be driven home. So it's by no means his fault. The pre gets in the car wreck. It could have happened anyway, but pre wouldn't have been out driving had it not been for taking Frank home. But that's not the point. It's not his fault at all. But I thought he was pretty solid. We see a little bit of Matthew Lillard, who's Mm -hmm. best known from Scream. But then Bev and I did The Descendants just a few weeks ago, where he's got a heel role in that. He's a bad guy in that. And then Dean Norris, you talked about an assistant coach. Well, he is the assistant coach, so the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul guy, and many other films like Total Recall as well. He's also in T2 in a small role, but that's Dean Norris playing that role. And then Judith Ivey, I don't remember who she is, but she was in Mystery Alaska, one of your favorites. That's Bowerman's wife. I think she's in one or two scenes. She shows up during the Waffle Iron Mm -hmm. shoe. May only be one scene. That might be the only one, right? But she's in Mystery Alaska, and I don't remember what character she plays. Maybe it's the mayor's wife or something like that. But I had to bring it up because I know you love that movie so much. Oh, okay. Our last hockey movie. we got to find a good hockey movie to expunge that from our <laughs> brain. Especially you. You hated it more than I did. But anyway, a pretty solid cast. I just rattled off. There's a lot of other people, of course, in it. But it's a crewed up Sutherland. That's really the focus here. And then Potter as well with the love story. We didn't love that much, especially you. 
I think they do a good job in the scenes they play together, which is numerous and varied throughout the movie, obviously. But there's weird quirks to this script, and it starts very early on. And you reminded me of this when you were talking about Dean Norris and Matthew Lillard visiting for the recruiting trip. Prefontaine cites all of the schools that are trying to recruit him as probably the top track athlete in the country. And he says, I ain't going to U of Oregon, despite the fact that we see all of these newspaper clippings on his wall about the University of Oregon and Bill Bowerman. But I'm not going unless Bill tells me how much he wants me. And like you said, we know Bill doesn't recruit, but he does write the letter. Small letter, a very short letter, but something at least. Yeah. and He it's, just wants to be wanted. That's all Pre wants. Yeah. But what killed me was he clearly has a ton of respect for this guy, right? For mm -hmm. Bill Bowerman. He shows up at the University of Oregon and makes his way to the gym and he gets into the lineup and he starts quizzing the people in the lineup that are waiting to have their feet stenciled by Bowerman, right? And we get these little snippets about Bowerman and it's clear that Prefontaine wants to know about this guy that he's idolized from a distance mm -hmm. at this point or at least idolized the success that Bowerman has had on the track. But then from the moment he meets the guy and pretty much through the entire movie... All right, coach, what do you want me to do? No, I'm not doing that. I run the front. <laughs> What's that legendary running coach? No, I'm not doing that either. I'm like, well, why did you insist on this letter from this guy to come to the school to be coached by this legendary dude if you were just going to, from jump, ignore everything he wanted you to do? And if they had had him try stuff and be like, that's not really for me, it would be easier for me to swallow. But the extent to which we get that is him going for a slow start to the race once lasting for about a quarter lap and then just going mm -hmm. and that's it and then for the rest of the movie it's just i got a front run i got a front run and i got a front run and bowerman just gradually seems to cave into it i could never really understand that element of the relationship why was he so hell-bent on university of oregon if he was just going to as he says later in the movie decide that he knows himself better than anyone else could and therefore he's going to decide how he's going to best race you know what i mean right, right, yeah exactly well, he doesn't like drafting, and we talked about Tom Cruise a lot in this episode. That, of course, is also in Days of Thunder. They talk about it so much, I guess it's real with a body in front of you. Mm -hmm. But I believe it more with cars. It's big with cars, yeah, yeah. for sure. Surprise it would be such a big deal in this. But in that restoration race, they talk about it being really windy, and that's one of the reasons why they decide to share off the drafting duties, Frank and, or they was called Shorter and Pre. Well, we said the sport's pretty well portrayed, I thought. We're not really experts on it, but seemed actually top-notch, especially the big race. Claire Simpson was the editor. She won an Oscar for Platoon many years ago. Conrad Hall, great cinematographer, worked with Town on Tequila Sunrise. I think he was nominated for that. Hall shot so many great films. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is a big one there. And, of course, movies in this era can take advantage of some of the great songs of all time. I mentioned Freakin' used it in Blue Chips, and it didn't feel logical because it should have been rap and hip-hop for those young guys. But Freakin' probably thought, well, Nick Nolte would be listening to this kind of music, and he's the coach, so that's why I'm playing this music. But at least in this movie, it fits, because it's set in that time frame with people that would have been listening to that kind of music. That's fair enough. And we already said before, the movie is pretty lusty, one of the lustiest ones we've ever had. Good-looking people, so you could score out this movie. Pretty sure did. Yeah, this is a movie with shower scenes, sauna scenes. You get a lot of sweaty, fit young men all over the place. And both Iowa's Finest and Monica Potter are quite lovely young women. Well, I give it a 7.5 out of 10. Obviously, that's a higher score than you're going to say, but what is your number? I'm somewhere around 5 on this one. Oh, that bad. I've cited my grumpy old man grievances with this movie already. I'm still undecided because I'm not sure of intention stuff that we talked about earlier, but I think I liked Billy Crudup in this role. 
I definitely love Donald Sutherland. The portrayal of the sport and just the portrayal of the era generally, I thought was really well done. That's as well. a big reason why I say seven and a half. Yeah, but there were some elements of it that just flopped so hard for me. Part of it was the portrayal of Prefontaine's personality and relationship with Bill Bowerman that I just couldn't quite understand. But more so than anything else, what killed me in this movie was post-Munich. It was so jarring to me that we leave the race in Munich with him finishing fourth. And yeah, I get that it's disappointing, but he's first Olympics. He's 23 years old at that point, I believe, maybe just turned 24. And he's obsessed with racing. He might be obsessed, but we get... i got to be around him, Mick. How's he not an i got to be around it guy? Which I can see is later on by showing up when Bowerman's given the same speech to new students years later. So he is an i got to be around it guy, but why wasn't he always? You're right. He is obsessed with it up until Munich. And again, this comes back to the fact that he lost one race at the absolute highest possible level. And then we just don't get any explanation about what was happening with him from then basically up until 1975 when Bowerman goes to find him at his bartending job. And I think this movie would have benefited so much from even a five or 10 minute sequence of scenes that showed us how Steve was struggling with this notion of his invincibility being shattered. I think they point that out when he's at the bar and then they have the scene outside. Tan would yep. probably say this is what he's doing with that scene. But what happened? He was in school until 1974. Because it was leading up to the 1976 Montreal Olympics. So Munich, he races in 1972. He was in school starting in 1970. And he wouldn't have graduated until 74. So was he still racing collegiately and then stopped in 74, moved away? This is why I, I had a little bit of like a whiplash, what's going on with this guy effect, because the timelines didn't work out. He just suddenly fell off a racing cliff. So that took me right out of the movie to the point where when he starts picking it up again and we're supposed to be rooting for him to get to the Montreal Olympics... For all I know, this guy just hung it up for three years, and if that's the case, then I don't really care anymore, because... Okay. Last question I have for you. He's offered $200,000 after one exhibition race just before the Montreal Olympics, or some weeks before Montreal, after, again, from all we know, not racing for three years. And this is 1974, 1975, so two hundred grand would have been somewhere around $1.2 to $1.5 million today. Okay. It's a lot of money. Would I take it? Is that what you're asking? Would you me? take it? It's not an easy answer, actually, because if you are obsessed with running and you want to win at the Olympics, or at least be in the Olympics again, you can't if you go pro, which is ironic with some of our favorite sports like hockey and baseball and other sports. Well, maybe not baseball, but hockey and basketball have had pros at the Olympics for many years. They don't again, but they did. But running those kinds of sports never really do. So I don't know how to answer that question. It depends on what you really want in life. He also is struggling, but maybe he doesn't care that much if he has a crappy apartment and a crappy car. Maybe. Although I don't think his car is that crappy, but maybe he does not care about that as long as he has the opportunity to race, especially in the Olympics. And if he had won in Montreal, maybe then he would have been more than fine with taking a payday. And you'd think he would get it because we've seen Canadian Olympians who won big. I forget their names now. The ice dancers or the ice skaters, whatever the hell they call that. The pairs. Mm -hmm. Moyer and what's her name? I can't think of her name. I don't know why because she's in so many commercials. And I don't blame her at all for cashing in, but they finally did. And they're two of the yeah. greatest ice skaters in our country's history. So the answer to that question, I don't know. It would completely depend. At this age I'm at, I would have to say, yes, at 47, <laughs> of course I'd take that money now. But when I was his age, if I was as good as he is and had the chance to be a legend, I don't know if I would. 
that's a good point. He was still very, very young. And if you're expecting that you're still going to be in your racing prime for years to come and that there will be offers like this still in the future. So why not hold off for now? That's fair. Again, it comes back to the fact that we have a three-year gap where the only information we really have about him is coming from Bowerman saying, oh, I haven't really seen you training much, Steve. So when he's acting like, oh man, I really, really want to go to Montreal, and all I can think about is Bowerman saying, well, you haven't really been training, it felt a little inconsistent somehow. Maybe there's a reason why Robert Town has only directed, I think, four movies in his career, but he's just not <laughs> a great director. Yeah, Although I like this enough. movie more than you did. I thought the tone was pretty consistent. It's not the most entertaining movie of all time. Ford versus Ferrari was certainly more entertaining, but ironically, those two movies have more links than I would have thought when this podcast started, and they're in the same month. Oh, last question for you, Ryan. As a film buff, because you mentioned a few sequences in this movie that clank for you, what did you think of the sequence where Prefontaine dies? He's driving around the road. He's recounting how he's going to run the mm -hmm. next race to set the 3,000-meter world record. 12 minutes, 36 seconds, which is how long the eulogy is. That was a nice touch, incidentally. Mm -hmm. So he inadvertently swerves into oncoming traffic, as this movie tells it anyway. Ends up driving off the road, hitting a tree, flipping the car, and then we get the dimming of the headlight indicating, of course, that Steve mm. has passed away. That struck me as a little bit cheesy. That struck yeah. me as cheesier than the heart comment in the Sutherland eulogy. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I have to agree with you on that. All right, fair enough. Mm. You made me like the movie a little bit less than the past hour or so, <laughs> but I still like it more than oh, you. Oh, man. <laughs> Actually, in some ways, we'd love to see Cruz play this character because he would have been so driven. Oh, there would have been so much energy. Crudup, of course, is not quite as intense. No one is as Tom Cruise. Okay, everybody who cares, enjoy the Olympics in the next couple of weeks because they do start tomorrow. Almost over by the time we post our next episode. And in two weeks, we'll cover our first boxing movie in quite a while. Brad Pitt has an accent no one can understand, and everybody funnies it up in Guy Ritchie's crime caper, Snatch. And looking it up on Wikipedia, it sounds like we can call this a boxing movie, so we will. Hey. And we'll have fun. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but I know it was funny and fun, and Pitt steals the whole thing. Any excuse for me to get a little bit of Brad Pitt, a little Jeremy, Jason Statham, right. a little bit of Turkish in the mix is good enough for me. Not a huge Guy Ritchie guy, but I do like this movie an awful lot. Yeah. Okay, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. You can find all of our podcasts now, 82 episodes, wherever you get podcasts, wherever you got this one. Please rate us and review us. Helps us grow the show a little bit. And tell us we did good or bad. You can say we sucked if you want to. Feedback is good. Hopefully not. Don't do that, though. Be nice. Well, pre, do what you never did in life and take her easy. This is the most fitting movie for that outro Ever. Please take a reason. Please just take a reason.